the time to join us here in Ottawa with this special thanks to our guests who have traveled from uh, some of them across the continent to join here, uh, join us here today. I'm Catherine Jobin. I'm the Acting Assistant Deputy Minister for Strategic Policy here at Global Affairs Canada. And I will be your moderator for, for this event, which means I will have the task of trying to keep everything on time. Um, before I, I pass it on to my colleagues who will make opening remarks, I, I would like to uh, maybe focus on three things. The first is uh, a recap as to why we are here, why we organized this roundtable, a bit of housekeeping and, and some introductions. So we're here for a roundtable on engaging historians in the policy formulation process at Global Affairs Canada. It's an event that seeks to help us reflect on how to better engage historians and history in, in the way we do our work. Um, this is against the backdrop of a very ambitious and exciting transformation agenda that's led by my colleague Antoine Chevrier here to my left. And in, um, in essence, one of the facets of the transformation agenda is that we are trying to be formally and informally uh, more open, more connected with the communities of practice and the intellectual spaces that think and write about the issues on which we work. And um, we do have to that end some nascent work underway to create an open insights hub as part of the structuring aspect. But we also know that a lot of the fluidity between communities takes place through in-person connections. So today's ambition is also to get to know each other, to get to exchange on, on process and substance so that we create these, uh, these links amongst our different communities of practice. If you've done the readings uh, that were distributed uh, in advance of this event, you will uh, have retained a couple of things. One is that uh, we live in a world of turbulence. Um, and the other is that historians possess unique expertise in contextualizing present challenges within their historical framework. Um, there were some excerpts of the reading that suggested that in the UK in the 1930s, bureaucrats were often skeptical or indifferent to the inputs of historians, but over time they appreciated seeing historical patterns, which helped them to anticipate future developments. So we're hoping to be on that journey here uh, with the colleagues around the table. Um, an important acknowledgement uh, that I would like to make here, which is entirely consistent with the purpose of the event today, uh, which is rooted in history, uh, is that Ottawa is built on unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe uh, territory. The people of the Algonquin nation uh, vive sur ce territoire depuis des millénaires. Leur culture et leur présence ont nourri et continuent de nourrir cette terre. Donc nous rendons chez Affaires mondiales Canada et je suis certaine que les, les collègues universitaires autour de la table euh, rendent hommage aux peuples et aux terres de la nation Algonquin Anishinaabe ainsi qu'à toutes les Premières Nations, aux Inuit, aux Métis ainsi qu'à leurs précieuses contributions passées et présentes à ce territoire et à l'ensemble du pays. And it's an important uh, moment uh, in the year to reflect on this, having just um, uh, had the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation a couple of days ago. Uh, housekeeping wise, this event is being recorded uh, so that we can disseminate uh, the conversation to colleagues at Global Affairs Canada who might not be able currently to uh, to participate. Um, in the context of the recording, we will also provide some closed captioning. Um, and that may, brings me maybe to an acknowledgement that the um, 
the event, the conversation will probably mostly take place in English, which is the language of of, uh, of use of most of uh, the academic colleagues around the table. Uh, but uh, the concept of linking up with uh, the intellectual spaces that exist in Canada, uh, including in Quebec and in, in uh, French-speaking uh, uh, communities in Canada, is important. Donc, dans ce contexte-là, on va aussi chercher à organiser des événements similaires avec d'autres collègues qui viennent d'autres traditions intellectuelles, ce qui nous permettra aussi d'avoir des conversations dans les deux dans les deux langues officielles et incluant en, en français. Euh, donc, euh, je voudrais peut-être présenter les gens qu'on a autour de la table ici. Euh, la première chose, c'est que je ne vais pas demander aux collègues des affaires mondiales de se, de se présenter, mais je pourrais dire que pour le bénéfice de nos, de nos amis historiens, on a des collègues qui sont responsables de questions géographiques. Euh, par exemple, de, 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 euh, je vois ma collègue Cathy qui est responsable de l'Ukraine juste là. On a des collègues qui sont responsables d'enjeux plutôt fonctionnels. On a des gens euh, qui sont euh, des cadres et des cadres supérieurs. Et puis, vous voyez aussi à l'arrière toute une rangée euh, euh, qui, qui représente euh, euh, les, les gens, les collègues qui, étaient, euh, et qui sont intéressés par la question de l'intégration de perspectives historiques dans notre euh, travail. On a aussi euh, dans nos équipes des gens qui sont euh, des historiens professionnels qui sont, qui sont avec nous euh, aujourd'hui. Uh, in terms of uh, the historians who are joining us today, Um, each of them has a range of titles and honorifics, plenty of publications, extremely impressive accomplishments. In the interest of time, I will try uh, for a two-line bio for each. Uh, so we have with us uh, Francine McKinsey, who is a professor at uh, Western University. Uh, I understand is also a uh, undergraduate, uh, a former colleague of uh, Lynn McDonald, who's our DG of uh, International Security. International Economic Policy and, and Foreign Policy. Uh, Francine has conducted research on the relationship between trade and politics, as well as recent work on global order and global governance. We have Dominique Marchal uh, over there, who is a professor at Carleton University. She teaches and researches the past of social policies, children's rights, humanitarian aid, disability and technology, refugees, and the extraction of natural resources. We have Cindy Iwick from uh, the Monk School of Global Affairs, assistant professor at the, University of at the University of Toronto, is working on a book that chronicles Global South contributions to the development of the International Bill of Human Rights at the United Nations. Thank you for joining us. Susan Colburn, who, there, uh, who is associate director of the program in American Grand Strategy at Duke University. An expert on transatlantic relations, she writes and regularly comments on issues of European security and the past, present and future of NATO. Michael Morgan, over there just in front of me, associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and author of the final act, the Helsinki Accords and the transformation of the Cold War. Tim Sale, I see Tim Sale who is associate professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and author of Enduring Alliance, a history of NATO and the post-war global order. And he regularly writes and speaks about the history of the alliance. Jack Cunningham, who is program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History and assistant professor at Trinity College, where he teaches in the international relations program. And Asa McKercher, who's on our screen here, assistant professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and editor-in-chief of International Journal, Canada's Journal of Global Policy Analysis. Uh, 
Um, for colleagues who are from Global Affairs Canada, what I will ask you to do is if you are uh, making an intervention or engaging in the discussion, just please introduce uh, or help our guests locate where, where you fit in our organization. And I will turn it to our Deputy Minister of International Development, Chris McLennan, uh, by way of introductions, um, by way of introduction, as some of the colleagues at GAC might not know that Chris is actually a professional, uh, professionally trained historian, having uh, written on uh, the Charter, uh, amongst other things. Uh, he's also, of course, held a number of senior uh, leadership positions at Global Affairs Canada, Privy Council Office, and I know previously at Employment and Social Development Canada as well. And after Chris, I'll turn the uh, floor to Antoine Chevrier, who's our um, head of transformation. And uh, as I mentioned earlier uh, today, the concept of the, the department transforming itself is part of what led us to have uh, this roundtable today uh, in terms of building practices and uh, and substance of engaging with each other on the policy challenges that we face. So over to you, Chris. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, uh, and thank you to everyone for joining. And I say that to everybody in the room, both um, uh, historians, new colleagues, and of course, all of our existing colleagues from the other side, because that's actually the reason why we are doing this in this format. Um, the, the why we're here is very much one uh, related to how do we create a better space to create a better understanding between two milieus that are very, very much seized and care about the same subject, which is Canada's place in the world, Canada's foreign policy, and the world in which we work, the international relations of the way the world works. Um, we, on our side of the table, and we've kind of organized this in a very United Nations way, um, no flags, we all have the same flag at least, that helps, um, is, you know, the goal is really to try and find those places where we can speak to one another, to listen to one another, and better understand each other on a common subject. Um, uh, Catherine mentioned uh, the challenges. This is one of the first times we've done this in a long time of, of Canada's official languages. Comme elle a mentionné, bien sûr, notre approche, on avait plusieurs idées. Uh, could we do simultaneous translation? Should we do uh, separate meetings? And, you know, we're going to kind of try different things, I think, as we go along. But the discussion on how do we manage the two languages did make me think, you know, in many ways, we also, even though we're both speaking English, still speaking two languages in terms of the academic milieu and the government milieu. Um, I do recall even in doing my my research uh, where I would sit for hours and hours and hours at the National Archives, uh, coming across deputy ministers complaining about academics, that they were woolly minded and they did not understand the reality of what it means to make policy. Um, and there's truth in that. There's truth in that. Uh, there's equal truth in the other side of the story that uh, government policymakers are moving too fast. They don't take the time to actually sit back and listen and study before they leap to decisions and choices. And that's true too. So this is an opportunity to try and bring together two, uh, two ways of looking at the same subject. And I think the benefit goes both ways, but as a Canadian public servant, 
um, and somebody who has dedicated his life, uh, I think, to the public service of Canada. Um, our interest at Global Affairs Canada is to ensure that we do the very best for our country. And that means marshalling all of the amazing talent, both in the walls of this building, which I know most of you, if you haven't visited here before, uh, read about it uh, in all of your archival materials. Um, and the best of Canada's intellectual traditions and the best of Canada's uh, thinkers on the very same subjects. All of it in the interest of uh, making this a better place to be for all Canadians, but also to weather and to navigate our way around the world. So why now? There's a couple of why nows. Um, you could just read the newspapers and realize that history uh, is front and center in Ottawa over the last couple of weeks. Um, so there is an emphasis on the importance of understanding history. Uh, there's a second reason though, and Antoine will go into it in greater detail. The department is very keenly aware that we're living through a period of quite significant change. Now, I think we'll get an opportunity to talk about that um, when we look at uh, some of the subjects we look at together today um, in the international sphere. But Canada itself is going through change. And this department, which uh, many of us around this table have spent the majority of our careers in, and, and we feel very, very attached to this department and its future, this department will exist in 50 years. Canada will have a Ministry of Foreign Affairs 50 years from now. We want to leave this department better when we leave it uh, than when we found it. And Canada is changing. This department has to reflect the Canada of the future, and it has to be equipped to, uh, to, to conduct Canada's foreign policy in the future. That means changing things within our department. It also means changing the way our department interacts with Canadian stakeholders. Canadian academics, uh, Canadian citizens. And that is one of the challenges we've given ourselves. Um, this is our first foray uh, into it. And I will tip my hat a little bit to Tim, who reached out to me specifically and uh, kind of noted the difficulty that the Canadian historians of Canada's foreign policy felt in terms of just piercing the hard armor of Fort Pearson uh to actually be heard um i know all of you are keenly aware that you know uh, the ability to influence policy is difficult even quite honestly your colleagues from this building around this table feel the same way sometimes that our ability to actually influence policy uh is difficult sometimes um but this is a fantastic opportunity to have one of those first conversations. I'm hoping that it's free flowing. The goal is to establish relationships. The goal is to think a little bit about how history can contribute to a better understanding of policymaking, how historical skills, which maybe we'll talk a little bit later um, over lunch about how the, the skills of historians are actually relevant to policymaking in the government of Canada, not just in this department, but across it. Uh, so in terms of what your students and what you can say back to your students in terms of what a, what a job in the public service might mean for them. Um, and so with that, what maybe what I'll do is I'll turn it over to my colleague Antoine to talk to you a little bit about the future of diplomacy and the transformation of this department. 
Merci. Uh, merci, Catherine. Merci, uh, Chris. Merci pour l'invitation. It's a pleasure to be uh, with, with all of you and it's going to be, it's either easy or hard to follow kind of great interventions by Catherine and Chris because they've covered many of the elements, but just maybe to highlight a couple of uh, of things. Um, so my kind of my role is is to lead the charge along with many colleagues and my team, but also colleagues in the department on the transformation agenda. Uh, just uh, from a uh, recent recent history, the future of diplomacy discussion paper was launched in June by the minister, and then we uh, also launched in September the transformation implementation plan. Uh, it's available. We can discuss some more if you want. There are multiple components. Uh, but there's certainly a commitment uh, to uh, through all the different actions and deliverables under the five pillars of the transformation implementation plan to really um, look at what we do, how we do it, and making sure that, as Chris said, that we leave the department in a better shape mm -hmm. than it is right now to face the challenges that are not only emerging, but also build the flexibility and the capacity to adjust to face new challenges that we're not anticipating right now. And to do that, we also need to learn from the past, which is super interesting in terms of this particular conversation. I'm always reflecting on the facts, sometimes talking about my job that I actually don't want to build or help kind of change a department for somebody like me who's going to retire who has most of its career behind me, but for the people who have not joined the department already and we're trying to attract them. And it's not only to retain them, to attract them, to make sure that they feel stimulated, that is part of a conversation and a part of a, an interesting department to work. Uh, and this is some of the DNA of the transformation agenda. So just connecting to other elements uh, of that as it pertains to this this meeting uh, and future meetings of the same nature uh, with different communities and uh, people I've talked, colleagues I've talked about official languages, of course, and, and different communities in Canada as well. So how it connects to a couple of uh, fundamental elements of the plan. One is knowledge management and sharing. Part of the uh, idea is um, we want the organization to be better at harnessing knowledge, tapping into existing knowledge, both within and outside the walls of this department, sharing it in a fluid way and making sure it's, that we make good use of it. Um, kind of piercing the walls of Fort Pearson, that that <laughs> made me laugh, but not necessarily because it's funny, but it's true. Uh, so, but it kind of the walls is are not only outside this organization from people outside they're within this organization we're a very siloed organization we're vert very vertically minded as well and that touches on many different configuration and aspects of the transformation so kind of developing that culture of knowledge development management sharing across different sections and departments within HQ, but also with our mission network and with our locally engaged staff and tapping into it is a fundamental part of it. And this conversation is is, is part of it uh, as well. Um, the open by default that that both Catherine and Chris made reference to uh, is, uh, is, is fundamental. So it's open by default from a policy function perspective. It's also open by default in terms of how we organize ourselves to deliver on our mandate. And that requires a cultural shift. And um, another, uh, just as as a last connector to one of the uh, other elements, I was we're just reflecting with Catherine just before going into the room and with uh, other colleagues from the department is, it is so nice to spend time to discuss 
things of substance and just take a deep breath and have a chance to engage. Uh, and so this is where I'm going to make a connection to one of the exercises that is under the leadership of, of, of Chris, which is reducing our burdens, being more efficient. And what this means is not only kind of being efficient, although kind of there's an efficiency, we're custodian of taxpayers' money, you want to make sure that we're making good use of it, but it's also to give time back for people to do value addition work. Uh, our, our colleagues are mostly kind of spending time preparing material, filling forms, and they don't have the opportunity to engage in knowledge-based conversation, to not only learn from the people in this room, but also share what they know. And we need to change that mentality. So part of this, and we're just reflecting on having the chance to listen to that conversation, listen to the colleagues who are, and thank you for being here with us, is also fundamental to what the space we want to give to colleagues in this department to do this more and more, vis-a-vis -vis filling more and more forms. So multiple connections to the different uh, elements of the implementation plan, the team and I and the rest of the team and our colleagues in the team here in the room uh, are more than happy to discuss individually with all of you to discuss what the plan means right now and in the future. And I'm certainly looking forward to the conversation today. Great. Um, so speaking of spending more time uh, in, in knowledge uh, activities, let's delve right into it. Our first uh, topic is uh, our theme is making history work for today, involving historians and uh, policy formulation. The way we've uh, thought we would do it is we have three of uh, historians uh, of the historians who have joined us today who have agreed to do some some launch remarks, five minutes each. And then we will open the floor for uh, one of that free-flowing discussion that the deputy was uh, talking about. So I'll turn it to Dominique Marchal, who has agreed to kick us off. Merci. I didn't agree to start, but there you go. Yeah. I'm starting. Uh, the um, I thought in five minutes, thank you so very much for taking the time to give us the time to take a long time to discuss all this. It's important and I agree with all of you with this. So I thought I would tell you five things in five minutes. Uh, under the uh, lovely title of uh, Nesrin Malik, a Sudanese-British journalist who wrote a book four years ago called We Need New Stories, The Myths, the Myths That Subvert Freedom. And I, I brought the book here for show and tell during the break. Um, so uh, I get from what you're asking that you need new stories or you're looking for new stories. And it fits, I think, my disciplines uh, also constant reflection on uh, needing new stories uh, towards doing, like the three of you uh, said, um, a more just and a more democratic history, like you're trying to do a more just and democratic foreign policy. Um, and so how historians can help in doing this, um, uh, you know, it's part of my own reflection on uh, where do I look for stories? How do I teach them? And uh, whose history is it? Uh, and uh, I I do study you people because I do like a lot of us, uh, the history of how policies are formulated. And even in the highest, most fancy, you know, diplomatic top down uh, kind of policy making, one of the most fruitful questions I think is where do they get their sense of what Canada is, 
Where do they get their sense of where things should go? Like which newspapers do they read? Which community do they talk to? Uh, and, and that becomes a bottom-up story just by asking that question, right? So, uh, so in a way, thank you know, I'm 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 watching this today going on. So uh, the four other bits I want to see is four examples of what I have done recently about one uh, ways of working, two uh, ways of teaching, three um, uh, where to look, and uh, four with which documents. So one ways of working uh, project we just finished at Carlton called Gendered Design in STEAM, that is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art, um, where uh, IDRC tasked us, a group of designer and historians, to distribute 20 projects in the Global South on how to put gender more in teams of scholars who were working in STEM. And uh, I work with designers and we constantly reflected on how we were to make that program as just as democratic as possible and uh, uh, help teams that knew very little about gender to put gender in their work. And we came up with a lot of reflection on how does uh, you know science work and um, and then I listened to the only social scientist who was in the last round of international conferences on uh, climate change, uh, who was despairing of being the only social scientist on that team. They were and how they hit a wall because they they were opposed at the UN by. Uh, groups in the global south who did not believe these scientists. And so she was saying, and it was urgent, we need new ways of working. And I was thinking in our mini group there with 20 teams in the global south, where we were constantly reflecting on how to do this and where we included a lot of oral history, uh, we had found ways of working that maybe they could benefit from. Second, uh, ways of teaching. So uh, like you want historians to talk to you, in my daily job, I talk to, you know, dozens of, of undergraduate students and dozens of graduate students, and they have changed my topics. I work about disability now because they arrived and they wanted to study social policies linked to disability. And I have recently uh, researched how the International Federation of the Red Cross engaged with disability. And using a marvelous book called The Right to Maim about how it is one of these, you know, myths that subvert freedom where maiming uh, at, and, you know, injuring is so important in, in war making. And it's completely changed my way of looking at how, at how the Federation of the Red Cross is intervening and how the Canadian Red Cross Society, for better, lots of good examples and for worse, has been uh, working with the support of the Canadian government over since, you know, this 100 and almost 50 years of life now. The third uh, point is, you know, I said where to, how to work, uh, how to teach, where to look. So a lot of the questions when you read people like Nesrin Malik is how on earth did people miss that? Or how are we missing these topics? This is a lot what she's asking. And I've just written now a little history for a group who I'm part of a, on the history of refugees and generally more refugee-led policymaking. We're two historians in that group. 
about Leslie Chance, the Canadian fellow who led, who was kind of uh, coordinating the reflection that led to the uh, 1951 Convention on Refugees. And Chance was surrounded by mass displacement, internal mass displacement in Canada. Indigenous people, enemy aliens, you have it. It was all over him. And to ask how on earth did he miss it or what did he not miss is marvelous as a way of thinking about how policies are made. Uh, and so there, uh, the kind of big push now to do, uh, to to really, you know, reconciliation, to really look where were Indigenous people. They were all over the life of chance. He didn't see them or when he saw them, it was not good or something it was. Very interesting question. And my last one is which documents do I use? There, with the Canadian Network of Humanitarian History, I'm part of a group who does archival rescue. And we're trying to collect documents that are not official, that are in the basement of veterans, of uh, human rights history, uh, humanitarian aid history. Uh, and, uh, and then as I'm doing this, plus a lot of oral histories, I see how uh, the importance of trade unions. I've got to make my pitch there because I'm now president of my union, but they, this is, uh, so I want to say here that I don't need much money for my research, but I need public institutions that keep archives. That's my lab. And the, you know, terrible privatization of everything, you know, higher education, archives, libraries, whatever, is a danger to my work. And it is not money I need, but a very strong investment in public institutions that are making the job of activists, social movements uh, possible and people who study them. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, Dominique. Uh, I'll pass it on to Tim. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, thanks, Andy. Great. <laughs> That's great. Uh, thanks so much for having us here today. It's a real pleasure um, to be here and uh, just a, a wonderful opportunity, I think, to start having conversations in Canada that are happening in other places. And I guess that's the main Actually, my main point, I guess, is that we're going to get to practical mechanisms and limiting historians to five minutes is probably the best practical mechanism anyone could think of for something like this um, to get us started at least. But um, I think some of these conversations began in the first place, at least amongst my colleagues and I, because we are invited to speak to other governments about our areas of research. And being Canadians or at Canadian institutions, um, we certainly hope to have those conversations uh, with our government. And so this is a wonderful way to start that. Um, and the making a connection between the study of history and policy is is not new. Um, it's not new. It's actually a field of study in and of itself. Now, there are books and scholarly articles all about the connections between history and policy. Um, and so that's something that's developing sort of in the academy I wanted to flag. But more important, as I'm as I set my syllabi this fall and I thought about them, I was really struck how much of the work I am assigning my students to read was actually developed by historians working uh, with government. 
this is our four courses on the history of intelligence services and another course that deals with uh, crisis simulations. And really the, the best book on the Suez crisis, um, it's recently been published, but it grew out of a, a academic government relationship at Harvard um, where experts from government and academia work to create case studies representing each country involved in the crisis. Um, we have work that's been developed in universities in cooperation with government or written by government historians. There's something about scholarship that is prepared in a way that's meant to be accessible to policymakers or to officials that makes it extremely useful for teaching undergraduates as well. And it puts the scholarship in a, in a much more accessible form. So there is a long tradition of this. The work I'm talking about has usually been developed either in the United States or the United Kingdom. And I guess my main point here is that we don't need to reinvent the wheel here in Canada. There, re there are real current examples of these connections uh, working and working well uh, in other countries. So I'll just describe um, sort of some recent developments in the United Kingdom, um, and particularly the development of the integrated review that the United Kingdom conducted now uh, a few years ago. Um, and what's what's striking is that they're, the UK uh, FCDO and cabinet office are very good at integrating historians into their academic outreach conversations with other scholars. And we can talk about that later. But what's interesting in this case, the lead up to the integrated review was a specific effort to consult historians. Uh, and the theme, the organizing principle was strategic reset. And so the cabinet office worked with King's College London and the Grand Strategy Center there to prepare a series of cases, um, historical cases of strategic resets. And so there were historians who were studying strategic resets, um, shifts in world order from the UK perspective over time, and then also how other countries had dealt with strategic resets. And by the end, there was this compilation of short essays that covered both UK history, but also global history, drawing on historians really from all over the world. Uh, and then this document was made publicly available, but it was also passed uh, to the cabinet office um, and it's interesting because I asked a number of historians, did they ever hear back um, as to whether it was useful? And there was some sense they had received some plaudits, like, thank you for doing this, this was very useful. But there was never any feedback loop on whether the actual policy prescriptions or descriptions was useful. And I think that's that's totally appropriate and that's okay. And that was certainly okay with these historians. They were interested and um, felt they had something to contribute merely by describing the history of a particular event and, and recognizing that it was only one of many inputs going into the policy um, process. So after that project finished and that document is that collection of essays is, is available online. There was a developing relationship um, with the university and government where the government could then um, give topics where they could um, then receive a very short but um, thorough and, and scholarly but short and timely document in response to a specific question um, or description of a certain event um, from a historical perspective. So there is this ongoing, more timely, quicker process that grew out of this um, broader, more formal um, connection. So that's a very formal connection. There's, of course, rooms for sort of informal connection between um, government and policy. 
Um, and I think it's the range of relationships that's so valuable. Having either this very formal process um, or just connections, um, or I should say and instead of or, and connections, um, this feedback about what it is that policymakers would like to know more about. What is it that they're thinking about um, that gives historians an opportunity to also think about those things from their perspective? And I think there is, I mean, I know there are people here at Global Affairs Canada who are doing excellent historical work and lots of people here with historical training. And so I I, I only wish to say that um, I think there's value coming from that from independent historians working on those topics as well. And it's certainly not as if those that work isn't happening. Um, but there's value coming from independent study of these things. And it's sort of a punchline in the history of Canadian external affairs lecture that the Trudeau government, the earlier Trudeau government, sorry, um, not getting too contemporary today, but um, prepared this series of books for the Canadian public, Foreign Policy for Canadians, about Canadian policy toward all different parts of the world. And there was, there was no book on the relationship with the United States. And why? Because it's a very difficult relationship to describe publicly and to have the government weigh in on. And so there, that's sort of the joke that the most important, the lecture, right, that the most important relationship is the one that actually isn't discussed in the policy review. And I think we can see, um, we can understand why it can be difficult for governments to speak openly about their policies and concerns, and but independent historians um, don't have those strictures um, and, and can offer, I think, a, a different a different viewpoint or a complementary viewpoint. And then just finally, my very last point is that it is unreasonably difficult to study Canadian history today. It is unreasonably difficult, and that's primarily a result of our access to information regime here in Canada. Um, Still waiting for, I'm still waiting for documents from 1943. I mean, at this point, a 70 year rule would be better um, than what we have in Canada. And this has, this is not a problem for me, but it is a problem for Canada, I think. I think the United States and the United Kingdom have done a great job of using their history as soft power. And we continue to send Canadian students to the US or UK or other places to do their doctoral work and their studies because it is easier to study the United States and the United Kingdom. And just like someone who loses their keys on a dark street will look for those keys under the street light, right? Historians will study where the documents are available. And it is hard to study Canadian history and we have very few people doing it. And I think that's something that we should keep in mind when we're thinking about the future connection between uh, history and policy. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, and I'll turn it now to Cindy for five minutes and we're hoping to keep some time for discussion after. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. I just want to thank you very much for the invitation to have this discussion. I think it's extremely important. Um, just to build on my colleagues' comments, I, I wanted to just focus my remarks um, on encouraging us to think about three different forms of knowledge that historians can bring to policy. Um, these are things that I, I'm sure are being practiced here, um, but I'd like to just underline them for the basis of our conversation. Um, I'd first like to situate this within the context of a threat to archival knowledge in the world. Um, in many of the countries that I work in, in the Global South and Asia um, and in uh, North Africa, there have been archive laws passed recently that make it more difficult to access information. This in turn makes it even more difficult for historians or even members of the public to find the truth. And ultimately, that's what we're interested in is building knowledge and sharing knowledge for the purpose of understanding the truth. Um, 
This threat to knowledge, I think, makes it even more important for historians to be more accessible to the public and to governments and other institutions. And so one of the types of knowledge that I want to highlight is inductive reasoning. We differ from our colleagues in the social sciences in that we embrace complexity. We look for the surprising details. And in the very vast search that we do, we find surprising angles. And I think those angles allow us to um, create spaces for interaction or maneuver that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Modeling your question in advance and then finding that pattern or finding data to support that model excludes the surprise. And so in moments of crisis, so the, the second form of knowledge I'd like to talk about is how to situate um, our current time of crisis. Um, in particular, I study um, South Asia, a place of great crisis today and a crisis with Canada. Um, again, I'd like to highlight the importance of finding the small spaces for, for maneuver. We can deploy historical knowledge responsibly to find um, relationships or uh, to understand the motives behind a crisis that can permit for um, small steps, incremental changes that I think are highly valuable in a policymaking space, um, in a diplomatic space. Um, for example, um, I research neutral and non-aligned states. You know, what does it mean to uh, declare yourself removed from an international order for from a state of crisis or war? The assertion to be non-aligned is not to be inactive. It is to be engaged in the world, but rather to create a small space for maneuvers that take place behind closed doors. Um, this is what I think it means to deploy history responsibly, to understand the motives behind postures that may otherwise seem either ineffective or may seem highly limited or constrained are in fact aimed at creating greater space. So that's what I want to highlight. Um, the, the third thing I'd like to talk about is how Global South knowledges can actually help us understand paths that are not taken. Um, one of the things that um, I'm borrowing this from a colleague, Francine hosted a wonderful conference this summer um, in which we looked at the connections between history and policymaking. And so I'm borrowing an idea from another colleague. Um, the third thing I'd like to highlight that historians can bring to policymakers is to look at what didn't happen in history, not just what did happen in the record, but the decisions that were made in the context of other choices that weren't selected, the paths not taken. Um, in my own research um, in the early Cold War period, with the creation of the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization in 1954, one of the great conversations and debates happening at that time among um, Asian uh, policymakers was the great importance of not having a NATO for Asia. I know we'll be talking about NATO um, today, so this is my plug-in for how my own research area fits into this topic. Um, the foreign minister of the Philippines in the late 1940s and early 1950s was deeply concerned with the question of collective security, but absolutely did not want um, joint military exercises to take place in any Asian territory, um, in part because of the fear of a resurgent China after its civil war. In the context of ASEAN's you now commitment to its first military exercises ever, I think it's important to remember um, that 
there was a decided path not taken not to pursue this possibility of a NATO for Asia. Um, there was also a similar conversation about the removal of border questions in any multilateral discussion within Asia as well. And this happened um, at the same time in the 1950s and continued to be a major part um, of regional Asian diplomacy over the next uh, few decades. And so the removal of that question, though, of course, there have been many border skirmishes that define Asian diplomatic history, I think also indicates another example of a path not taken. And by looking at um, the decisions that were not chosen, the options that were on the table, but specifically not uh, selected in a time of crisis can be really useful and historical thinking um, really brings that to the fore. So I'd like to just highlight that as we think about how to um, revive or uh, maybe reform our own historical thinking and policymaking to keep in mind that um, deploying historical knowledge responsibly is to remember that there are plural historical knowledges. Um, Global South knowledge that uh, remembers things quite differently and often one of the key differences is that um, nations, uh, especially in Asia and parts of Africa, uh, remember history along a much longer time scale than we do in the West. Um, the thinking of history as occurring over a much longer time not only means that the grievances last much longer, but the possibilities for change are also much slower. So I would also caution us to remember the importance of different historical times, that different peoples operate by um, different timescales, and that also affects our ability to find spaces for maneuver. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, we'll open the floor for about a 15 minute discussion. And I will, uh, maybe I'll start with Daniel Holton, Michael Morgan, and I see a hand up in the back and I'd be happy to invite, uh, I think Jean-Michel is your name? Jean-Pierre, uh, to, the, to the table if you, you'd be so kind to join us if you'd like to engage. Uh, Daniel, over to you. Bonjour tout le monde, je m'appelle Daniel Holton. I'm the director of the Center for China Policy Research, which is a new team that was created uh, about uh, nine months ago here at uh, Global Affairs Canada. Um, first, a big thank you to all the presentations, uh, presenters this morning, very, very interesting interventions. And I think uh, kudos to Catherine and Antoine and uh, Deputy uh, McLennan for convening this conversation today. <clears throat> so, um, my my uh, intervention is going to be very practical uh, in nature, drawing on the experience that I've had over the last year, setting up a team that has actually, as a part of its mandate, uh, enhancing academic engagement, but on a more specific uh, topic set related to China and China as a sort of feature of the global environment for Canada. Um, and what I've found certainly um, is that that is invigorating and exciting, but it's also fundamentally it's a change management exercise. Getting getting people to do things in a different way is a change management exercise. And so I'll highlight four four points very quickly uh, that I've found. One is psychological. So individually and organizationally, we have to uh, not just think of ourselves as sort of. Uh, here to be approached by academia, because that leaves, as the deputy mentioned, the, the issue of the, the thick armor of Fort Pearson. So as public servants, we need to be not just accessible, but we need to be proactive. We need to recognize that academia is an important part of a conversation uh, that engaging with researchers does give important value-added uh, value perspectives, and that we have to, as, as leaders in the organization, make time to be proactive about pursuing those uh, relationships. 
um, and equally not just send an email now and again or show up for a webinar and and not even just present uh, when we're asked. So the deputy will come and give 10 minute remarks and then the 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 the, uh, the thing proceeds or I, I I'll give 10 minute remarks on the Indo-Pacific strategy or whatever. Um, but the greatest value that I found in those conversations is an uncomfortable one for some public servants, which is to actually engage and discuss and debate in a public setting. And to me, uh, and to me, that's uh, partly a matter of organizational comfort level and risk tolerance. That as an organization, we're much more comfortable reading prepared and approved key messaging than we are having a debate about the topic. Um, so psychologically, I think being more accessible, being more proactive, not just participating, but actually engaging in the topics with uh, counterparts outside government. Second is to institutionalize. This has to be structured. So um, in my in my team, we've set up. I would say two, 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 uh, two programs that are uh, potentially relevant. One is we've got a, a three member scholar in residence program. So on my team, we have at any given time, uh, we'll have an annual rotation of three academics uh, embedded within my team for a period of about a year. Um, and that is a great mechanism to bring in fresh perspectives for us, but also to to give um, uh, folks in academia a more concrete sense of what it's like to do policy uh, and to be able to engage in that way. Um, and so I think institutionalizing, setting up structures where it's not just ad hoc and it's not at the discretion of the manager, but there's some systems in place uh, to be able to hardwire that into the into the structure and likewise to pursue longer term projects, longer term partnerships. So, um, you know, one of the one of the one of the things that my team is doing is just being very proactive about identifying academic centers across Canada and actually proactively seeking opportunities to project to partner together on longer term research projects or events or conferences, et cetera. Um, third is uh, third is is cultural that um, that so our team, for example, we host roughly monthly panel discussions that are that are just knowledge events for the public service of Canada, not just Global Affairs Canada, but across the public service of Canada. Um, and I think doing those kinds of things is important because it it has the prospect of demonstrating the value broadly to a broad government of Canada audience um, that there is that there is value in these conversations. It doesn't again, it doesn't leave it up to individual officials to decide that they're going to go and, and read a historical piece, but that convening it in that sense um, uh, presents to a broader audience the value. Um, but importantly, and this goes back to the psychological and cultural piece, is that leadership has to show up for those things, that it can't just be interns and casual employees and desk officers that show up, but as a matter of leadership, if you're a director, if even, I mean, I'm not talking about deputy ministers, but I'm talking about if your director shows up and says, hey, hey team, this is a really interesting topic. I'm going to spend 45 minutes on this. I encourage you to do the same. That can have a really big impact. And last, sorry to sorry to speak for a long longer period of time, but last is to is uh, to sort of turn the tables a little bit and and deputy to take a, a, a take inspiration from a, a note you mentioned is that it's really important that academics have the competency set to be able to engage in, impactfully with public servants. Um, and so we're uh, one of the things that we're doing is looking at convening a next generation China, in fact, convening several next generation China scholars conference um, because we want to equip the next generation and the generation after that of academics to be able to not just have access, but understand when you have a deputy minister in front of you or you have an assistant deputy minister in front of you, there is a way that you can speak that is almost certain to have influence and the majority of ways that you can speak not academics but in general won't have influence because you're not you're not engaging on the terms conceptually and linguistically even that that will resonate with public servants and so as much as public servants i think 
think, have an obligation to to do better in terms of leaning into the value of academic engagement. I think academics also um, there's there's an importance to uh, recognizing that uh, part of part of having impact on public policy means getting out of the comfort zone and the the language set that you're used to using and being able to engage proactively on the terms uh, of your audience. Thank you. I, I think we will have a bit of a challenge with uh, time management, but I think it's a good challenge. Uh, I had notes here about, you know, if nobody wanted to intervene, the yeah. questions you could ask, I, I don't think I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll need my notes. So, um, so uh, I'll go, I think, Michael, you had your uh, placard up, uh, then I'm keeping a running list. I, I might uh, not get to everyone if we want to have time for the next uh, two topics, but over to you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. I needed rescuing too. Uh, I'll be brief. I'd like to make just two basic points. The first is when we say that policymakers want to engage with history and historians, what do we mean when we talk about history? What is that? What is history? And I'm not going to engage in some kind of grand philosophical discussion. I just want to say that there's at least three ways of thinking about what history means in this context. One way is to think of history as trivia. What year was NATO founded? When was the Statute of Westminster passed? When did the Berlin Wall fall, right? And this is the idea of history that we often see in the newspapers, the Canada Day survey that says, how many Canadians can name the date on which X happened, right? And it's 25% or 30%. And I, and I would say that this is actually the least important and least useful kind of history. History is trivia. But there are two other kinds, at least, that I think are much more useful and much more important, but harder to pin down because you can't do it in an opinion survey. And these are history as trend and history as sensibility. So history as trend means what are the long-term patterns over time that have shaped the backstory of whatever the current issue is? Uh, so when we think about the history of Canada's relationship with India or China or NATO, what are the long-term patterns over decades that have set the groundwork, set the context that we are now living in? What are we inheriting uh, on, those, on those issues? History of sensibility is something even more diffuse, but maybe in a sense more important. This is a, a habit of mind, a style of thinking, a, a way of asking questions. Uh, when, we, when historians approach an issue, they approach it with a different mindset than policymakers or political scientists. Uh, we look for we look to the long term. We look to questions of causality. We look to big patterns. We look at the relationship between structure and agency. Uh, and that mindset, I think, is not something that can be communicated in a five minute speech. it's it's, it's a habit of mind that needs to be cultivated over time. Uh, but I think it's no nonetheless incredibly valuable for policymakers to to have that sense, that historical sensibility to inform the work that they do. Um, and the second point that I'll make very briefly is that I'm delighted that this new initiative is happening. I'm delighted to be here. I think most of my colleagues are delighted to be here to be engaging. It's nice to feel needed or wanted. <laughs> uh, but I would say that relationship goes the other way too. Historians, especially in this field, especially in Canada, need the support of the government for our work because the history of Canadian foreign relations as an academic discipline is currently on life support. And the field is at risk of disappearing one retirement at a time. 
And so if this field, if this body of intellectual capital that's been built up over generations is going to stay alive and is going to be available in 50 years, uh, the government has a part to play in keeping that field alive, keeping that body of intellectual capital alive. And so I would say the need goes both ways. We historians need the government to um, to help promote what we're doing. Thank you. Jean-Pierre, is it? Um... I'll pass it on to you. Thank you very much. Uh, so for information, I'm Jean-Pierre Morin. I'm the Departmental Historian for Crown Indigenous Relations in Northern Affairs Canada and Indigenous Services Canada. I'm the Head of Strategic Research. I am an adjunct research professor at Carleton University, where I teach a course called History and Public Policy, which is all about exactly what we're discussing today, how to actually take historical research, historical perspectives, and historical tools that we all learn as historians and apply it in an actual policy context. For those in government, I make all of my students write an MC. It's just as stressful as a regular MC, uh, <laughs> or memorandum to cabinet for those who, who are not in government. Uh, and ultimately, one of the challenges that I've discovered over the years as I've been studying this, because since 2015, I have been studying how can we better use history, is the challenge of how do we get historians to understand policymakers and how do we get historians to under policymakers to understand historians? Because we don't ask the same questions. We want to get to the same answer, but we approach them in different ways. And while from an academic perspective, we need that academic freedom to be able to go and study without the constraint of the policy question or the political question. For us in government, it's the opposite. We need to be constrained by the political question because that's what the government needs to address right now. The unit that I manage inside Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada is inside the strategic research sector. We are embedded inside the strategic policy directorate. We support every member of the cabinet, every treasury board submission. We do research for every single policy initiative that comes through the department. We are designed to actually support it. And we have professionally trained historians to actually do historical research and policy analysis at the same time. So it's about blending this together. But it takes, it took decade for me to convince senior management to actually do it. And the conversation that you're having here today is extremely heartening um, to think that there are ways for us to find uh, mechanisms to place these two things together so that we can find the common language that actually helps us as policymakers ask the historians the right questions so that we don't get answers that require a 500 page dissertation. But at the same time, for policymakers to actually understand that the questions that we're asking are not simple. The amount of times that ministers' offices want the quick answer to their question is the biggest challenge that we have. You have five minutes at 11 o'clock. I have to go brief my deputy. I have 10 minutes. That's all I have. How do I explain a 300-year-old historical issue of the oldest continuous administrative institution in Canada in five minutes? It's extremely challenging, and it's a skill that we have to train historians to be able to do on the one side, and we have to train public servants to be able to actually ask those kinds of questions that will garner the kind of answers that we're looking for. So happy to discuss this at another time, because um, I could go on, and I will stop there. Merci beaucoup, Jean-Pierre. So uh, I think I will go to Francine now. 
Francine? Yes. I offer some comments tentatively because I think I am one of those woolly-minded academics who believes that history matters, but many historians, we have a hard time articulating why it matters to public policy. Although my three colleagues, I think, have done an excellent job, uh, and, and Mike and others in explaining why that's so. I, I don't have the competency set. Please write it. Can you write a 10-point <laughs> bulletin and I'll try to follow it. I'm really glad that none of my colleagues talked about the lessons of history. Um, when Mike talked about the different ways of thinking historically, the point is that people do think historically, or they think they're thinking historically, and it might not be recognizable to historians. That doesn't matter. History resonates with them. It means something to them. It helps them make sense of the world, and it affects their actions uh, moving forward. But for historians, I think we resist quick lessons of history because we do cherish the complexity the messiness, which doesn't mean there's no easy answer or there, no, there's no answer. It should lead to clarity of thinking. It just takes time, which I guess is uh, at a premium. Um, I want to say something about asking questions. So often you might think, well, historians will give you a, a kind of conclusion. But I actually think sometimes our most important contributions come in the questions we ask and changing the questions we ask. So when Dominique said the question they're now asking about Leslie Chance is, why didn't he see that? That's an important question that wasn't asked before in the story about the Convention on Refugees, and it needs to be asked. And there can be a problem for historians that we ask the same questions again and again and again. There can be a path dependency in policy and a path dependency in the creation or the production of historical knowledge that we need to be careful of um, and mindful of. And I just say a last point, which emphasizes something Cindy said, which is if we want to know more about Canada and Canadian foreign policy and Canadian engagement in the world, we absolutely must know more about the world and how the world sees all these issues at the same time. And while there are certainly crises with access to archives, there are also ways of capturing those voices. We need to look for them. We need to want to hear them and think about Canada in conversation with, um, with the world. Uh, and an object of scrutiny rather than just thinking of how we're going to make sense of our own kind of Canadian uh, challenge. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, and, and just as a nod to how it's important for senior managers to devote some time for this, I'll turn it to Rob Sinclair. Rob happens to be a director general who in his portfolio has Russia and Ukraine. So thank you, Rob, for uh, spending some time with us today. Thanks. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So um, I'd like to riff off of uh, Tim's and Cindy's comments in, in particular. First of all, um, uh, with regards to Cindy's comments about uh, importance of Global South knowledges and different knowledges, absolutely agree. Um, Canada as a country uh, built on immigration, we have numerous diasporas in Canada that bring uh, their own knowledges and history into the foreign policy debates here in Canada, and frankly, often have different reference points than the communities that they have left, frankly. So absolutely agree. And we need to have um, a, a found foundation of knowledge on which to import those views, I would say, rather than um, uh, going with the flow as we tend to do, I would say. Um, I'd also note that um, in Canada, we have much less flow or exchange of people between government, academia, private sector, the US, think great think tank uh, sector, but we need to promote that exchange. Um, 
and even within government, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the intelligence community. I was, um, that's a community that I've spent a fair bit of time in. I was our representative to the Joint Intelligence uh, Committee in the UK for a few years. Much greater flow in the community in the UK, uh, also in and out of the community with the various think tanks, and frankly, um, much greater injects of um, that academic knowledge into the intelligence community. And so, uh, very practical question security clearances, like getting historians security cleared so that you can get access to documents without impinging on your independence, uh, academic independent independence. And in that regard, um, the intelligence community has uh, very uh, developed structured analytic techniques that they use, you know, cones of probability and, you know, that's something that, frankly, I don't see our historical community feeding into much in, in Canada, either through PCO, Intelligence Assessment Secretariat, or our own in-house analytic uh, capabilities. And then it, it just an anecdote in terms of um, the, the Russia experience and the, the, the different knowledges and historical reference points. Uh, my wife, uh, my wife's family came from Russia, white Russians, refugees through Yugoslavia, etc. So we were posted in Moscow in 97, 99. My wife learned Russian from her mother and they laughed at the way my wife spoke Russian because it was like an 80 year old woman who fled the Russian revolution. And so the historical reference points are, are very much like that also. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Um, thank you, Rob. Uh, I'll go to Susan and then to Allison. If there's time, I'll go to Kati. Uh, but if not, we'll move on to the next uh, topic. Great. I just wanted to pick up one thing that Tim said and maybe dovetails with something Daniel said, uh, which is to underscore a practical thing. Right. Other countries already have frameworks in which they have existing structures for historians and specifically historians, not scholars, not political scientists, social scientists. They're useful, but historians in particular to do this kind of systematic and, and regular exchange uh, between policymakers and historians. So I say that because there are models we can borrow from. And, but also because I want to underscore that it's not only perceived big countries with enough resources that do this. Uh, Tim and I, a few weeks ago, uh, did a session with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the UK about the future of transatlantic relations in historical perspective, right? Forecasting out over the next 18 months. But six months ago, I did one with the Dutch government where the Hague Center for Strategic Studies uh, has a contract with the Ministry of Defense and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and they serve as a liaison to bring in uh, external historians. Uh, they wanted to talk about escalation risks and what uh, the history of the Euro missiles from the late Cold War could tell us about uh, Vladimir Putin and the situation in Ukraine uh, today. So my point is just uh, not, not for self-promotion, but to say that we don't have to reinvent the wheel uh, and there are a range of intermediary institutions uh, who could help. And that's something that can and should be cultivated in the Canadian context. Uh, but 
but the models are there. Uh, and the last thing I would say is picking up on, on something that was just said, uh, I can't help but point out that our historical community is not just in Canada, right? That is a critical part of the Canadian story is that many talented Canadians end up outside of uh, this country. And so there are many Canadians, like I think I could speak for Mike uh, and many others who live elsewhere, but would be happy to uh, engage the government at any time. And so there is a vast community of, of Canadian historians that they're interested in, in using their knowledge, however they can be helpful. Thank you. And to you, Alison. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be here. I'm Alison Grant. I'm the Director General for International Security Policy. Even though there's the policy word there, I really do feel like my job is more operational. I, I take care of, you know, I look broad view security relations, partnerships, alliances. So I find I'm more, you know, what are we going to say at NATO tomorrow or you know, what are our objectives at the next summit rather than the broad, uh, the broader policy remit. Uh, but very briefly, I just it's not very specific, but it, uh, I'm just going to lay out a couple of things that I hope we can get back to throughout the morning and and one big question for our historians. Um, I'm intrigued by, you know, as you said, Cindy, how do we deploy history in our foreign policy and how do how do how does my team deploy it in our everyday operational work is so critical. And Dominique, you talked about stories, and I think that you know, where do we get our stories from it was your very first question. I think as policymakers, we maybe often even subconsciously are driven by the stories that we hear about Canada. And I do have some concern, and I'm wondering if you share this concern too, that we are, we frame sometimes our policy in the well-known tropes about Canada that we're a peacekeeping nation, that we're a low defense spender, that we're a free trader. But you know this is not always true. In each of those examples, uh, there are times in our history when this hasn't been true. We once had the fourth largest navy in the world. And do Canadians know that? So I'm curious about that. And that really leads to my major question for all of you as we go through our discussion is what are the stories that you wish were told more about Canada and that Canadians understood? And Cindy, you mentioned those surprising details and angles, and I also was intrigued by that because those are sometimes those unknown pieces of Canadian history that um, that that could resonate with policymakers and the Canadian public if we knew more about them. Thanks. I think uh, I, I'll look at Kati to see. Do you want to intervene now, or we could? build it into an, a next session as well, and then we'll move on to the next. Yeah, everyone. Sorry, <laughs> one really quick thing, just to throw a little bit of a of a question also into, into the air, not for discussion now, but maybe during the break. Um, and it follows on the question of where we get our stories. So I'm Kati Chaba. I'm the, I head up the Ukraine Bureau uh, here at GAC. And uh, we have been a pioneer within GAC in using artificial intelligence to collect information on Ukraine uh, from media sources and also from the vast amount of reporting that comes in from our missions around the world. Uh, in some of the background reading for today's session, there were references to using artificial intelligence as a, as a way of drawing uh, that historical knowledge into our policy thinking. So I'm I'm just curious, and I know there are lots of risks involved, but I would be uh, interested in hearing from you as to what you think the possibilities are, as well as what you think the risks are. As I say, not for discussion now, but just to keep in mind. 
lots of great food for talk and we will try to keep some time for a bit of uh, chit chat at, at the break, but we will also be eating a bit into our break to to allow uh, for the <laughs> for the schedule to, to proceed. So our, our next theme uh, after having discussed a bit the, the method and, and the modes of engagement and connection point is is a uh, is uh, a theme of, of some contemporary and historical substance and relevance. So it's a uh, NATO in times of international crises. We'll start with introductory remarks from Susan Colborn, then we'll move to Michael Morgan, um, and then we'll proceed to, again, a discussion. So over to you, Susan. Uh, perfect. Thanks so much. It's really wonderful to be here. Uh, I want to make a few sort of framing remarks jumping off of the questions that were circulated. Uh, and the first is maybe an obvious one, but if we take the title, NATO in times of international crises, NATO is always in crisis. Uh, it is a joke among historians of NATO that uh, all we do is study crises and meetings. Uh, it is, that is the function of, of the discipline. So the basic reality of NATO as an alliance is that alignment and agreement are the outliers. The trend is one of controversy, of crisis, of disagreement and debate. That is just part and parcel of an alliance whether it is the earliest version of the alliance with 12 members or its current much larger uh, and still growing uh, iteration. We've all tried to arrange a meeting with a few people. Imagine what an international alliance with that many countries uh, is like as a bureaucratic challenge. Now, but what history can tell us is that not all of those crises are created equal. Some of them flow from structural trends and forces we can easily identify. They are the product of economic power and disparities of economic power, of size, of geography, of access to nuclear weapons. Some are less predictable and catch the alliance by surprise. But it can be easy to focus on crisis as the major theme, as a negative. But disagreement is also a source of strength. It is consistent with the values and principles of democracy, something the Alliance has long touted as a critical part of its existence, even as it struggles with having some not so democratic members in its ranks. For Canadians thinking about how Canada can operate in, in that kind of alliance, about whether the alignment of Canadian national priorities and the Alliance's priorities, uh, how that works, I think it comes back to articulating clearly what Canadian priorities are beyond being in NATO, beyond being present at the table, but being able to articulate what Canadians are hoping to achieve working through NATO. Why is the reason we want to be at the table in the first place? History can suggest a couple roles that Canada has traditionally tried to play when there is conflict and controversy. Canada has often sought to cultivate a role for itself as a mediator, as a way to bridge distinct positions and disputes between the various allies. As one, though by no means all, uh, one representative illustration I would draw on an episode from the early 1980s, the dispute over the Siberian pipeline, right? A project signed between Western European firms and the Soviet Union to bring Soviet energy sources to Western European markets, offsetting some of the huge energy dislocations of the 1970s and the oil shocks. 
was seen in the United States, first by the administration of Jimmy Carter, and then more so by the administration of Ronald Reagan, as dangerous, that it would leave the Europeans dependent upon the Soviet Union and hand the Soviet Union political leverage. When martial law was introduced in Poland in December 1981, the Reagan administration used it as justification to impose sanctions targeting the pipeline, right? Leveraging the fact that the supply chains, critical pieces of building the pipeline relied on US technologies. And therefore the United States could restrict the export of some of these materials. It precipitated a sharp divide, separating in large part the United States from its European allies, with even Margaret Thatcher's Britain opposed to American policy. And it was in that context that the Canadians looked to find common ground. Though they were frustrated with the direction of American policy and often pointed to their own struggles with American imposition of extraterritorial uh, mandates, they still hoped to bridge the divide and relied on something we might know well, informal discussions, the ability that Canadians might have as a convening power to bring the members of the Alliance to the table. The last point I'd like to make is touches on the question of building capacity and how it relates to the, the relationship between collective defense and finding diplomatic solutions. Building and investing in the Alliance's capacity is integral to the logic underpinning NATO. So it has been described often by previous Canadian governments as an insurance policy. And like any insurance policy for it to work, you want the better of the options on the table, not the low end off the shelf model. But in the way the question is framed in, in the discussion points, I couldn't help but be struck that it sets up a potential conflict between collective defense and diplomatic solutions to problems. But NATO's own strategy throughout the Cold War, one that has been revived and resuscitated post 2014 and certainly post February, 2022, saw the former the strength of collective defense as the essential foundation for the latter to achieve diplomatic solutions. So I would, I would toss the question back out to say, who says that collective defense and diplomatic solutions are fundamentally at odds with one another? The last thing I would say is that it can be easy to forget we focus on NATO in the present about the sources of debate, uh, frustration about whether Canada will meet its 2% commitments, all of these uh, kinds of very salient political issues. But these two and the alliance itself has a history. The institution has habits, it has norms, it has mechanisms and structures that are rooted in the past. And by understanding that past, we can better operate within the institution in the present and in the future. Thanks. Thank you, I will go to Michael. Thanks very much. I'd like to speak on a couple of questions related to our theme here. The first question is, uh, when we say that NATO is in crisis, what exactly do we mean? And I, I would echo uh, Susie's points that NATO has always been in some kind of crisis at, one, at, at almost every moment in its history. Um, the second question I want to address is, how has Canada responded to these moments of crisis and how can history help us understand those responses? So first, uh, when we talk about crises that affected NATO and the crises that were bigger than others, more equal than others, more dangerous than others, uh, it'd be easy to rattle off a list of particular moments. Uh, the Suez Crisis, 1956, a great point of pride for Canadian foreign policy. Uh, the French withdrawal 
1966 from NATO's Integrated Military Command. Uh, fights, maybe not quite a crisis, but fights over NATO enlargement in the mid-1990s. A crisis provoked by the American decision to invade Iraq in 2003. And I would even add to this um, what seems to me possibly an ongoing crisis, not involving NATO, but the creation of another alliance that Canada is not a part of, which is AUKUS, which raises some pretty basic questions about Canada's policy towards international alliances in the first place. So for each of those headings, we could point to a particular moment that seems to exemplify it, a particular year, 1956, 1966, 2003. But what I want to suggest to you is that each of those moments of crisis needs to be understood as the, the culmination or the product of a much longer historical era, a much longer historical trend. So when we look at the Suez crisis, this is the product, this was the product of the era, the trend of decolonization and the end of empire. Uh, when we look at the French withdrawal from NATO, this was a product of a longer term trend, less discussed, that's sometimes called the end of the post-war era, the crisis of the post-war order, the post-1945 order. Uh, when we look at NATO enlargement, the war in Iraq, these were culminating moments or crucial moments in the development of the post-Cold War world and what that world would look like. And Canada's responses to those individual moments of crisis reflected both the intellectual capital that had been built up over the long term during those much longer eras. So Canada's attitude towards Suez reflected decades of Canadian thinking and Canadian policymaking about the end of the British Empire. Uh, Canada's response to the crisis of the post-war order in the 1960s similarly reflected decades of Canadian thinking and policymaking towards the creation of that order and its the challenges that it faced in the 1960s. Uh, and so the responses that Canada developed required, when they succeeded, when Canadian policy succeeded, that reflected not just the decisions of the moment, but a long-term effort to build up intellectual capital, to think about these long-term trends, to think not just about a day or a week or a month and the next decision, but to think over a much longer time period about the era that we were living in, the transformations that the world is engaging in. And if you look at some of the great figures from the history of this department, like Odie Skelton or Lester Pearson, you can see that they had been wrestling with these deep questions about the end of the British Empire or the creation of post-war order for decades when the decisive moment came. Uh, and so the decisions, the products of uh, individual moments, days, weeks, at the moment of crisis, those were the culminating points of years of work. And it's easy to overlook the years or the decades of work and just to focus on the particular moment. But you can't have the moment without the backstory. And the, and the work that was done to get to that moment. So this is one way in which history matters, I think, because history matters in terms of understanding these patterns, but history also has to be a crucial part of the intellectual capital of the policymakers themselves so they can understand one of the simplest but most difficult questions in international affairs, which is, what is going on? <laughs> okay, now how has Canada responded? I would say if you look at these series of crises, these series of historical trends, we can identify at least four, maybe more, styles of response on the part of the Canadian government. 
The first style of response was to avoid making a decision. To kick the can down the road, to wait as long as possible, right? Uh, the decision about going to war in Iraq in 2003, I think, is a great example of this. And the more that we learn about the Christian government's response, the more it seems clear that the government at the time was waiting, 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 trying to put off a decision until it really became urgently necessary. Because circumstances were changing, the information available was changing. It wasn't really clear which way Canada would go. Uh, and sometimes that, sometimes that works. Sometimes it's possible to avoid a decision. Mackenzie King was another master of avoiding decisions. Uh, another approach that Canada has taken is to choose a side. In a sense, this is the, the the essence of the Suez crisis. Canada chose to side with the United States over siding with the British. And that decision was a, a pivotal decision, but the crucial result of, again, decades of policymaking that Odie Skelton was involved in of moving Canada out of the British orbit into the American orbit. So sometimes it's necessary for Canada to, to take, take a side to navigate these moments of crisis. Sometimes, I think it has to be said, and historians can take these risks and say things that officials can't, Canada has exacerbated these moments of crisis, like the Pierre Trudeau government's decision in 1969 to slash the Canadian troop presence in Europe by 50%. There, there were rational reasons for that decision, but nonetheless, it contributed to a crisis within NATO. Uh, and the final way that Canada has responded, I think the most effective, the most constructive way, is to try to build on, to try to create, to try to recreate, to contribute to the transformation of NATO itself, to contributing ideas, contributing intellectual capital, contributing effort to helping NATO reinvent itself. And another way to think about the history of NATO is as a story of constant reinvention in response to these crises. So we can point to crucial reports in the history of the Alliance. It sounds bureaucratic, but it's actually important. The report of the three wise men in 1956, the Harmel report 10 years later, uh, the decision about uh, Euro missiles more than a decade after that, there are these crucial moments of reinvention within NATO. And when Canada has done its best within NATO, it has contributed to that creative process of reinvention and rebirth. Um, but Canada has only been able to do that again because of its Canadian officials' deep understanding of long-term trends. Uh, and so when Canada has been at its best in dealing with NATO, I think it's been at its best because of that deeper knowledge and that, that the wisdom that's accumulated over, over decades. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susie and Michael. I'm ready. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I will go to first uh, Tim, uh, then Rob, then Lynn. Great. Yeah, th thanks so much, Susie and Mike. And I, I want to connect my sort of intervention here with Allison's question about stories, um, because I think there is sort of a, a concrete example we could think about where we could, we won't have a lesson of history, Francine, I promise, but a period of time where we could look at that would be useful today. And that's when we're thinking about escalation and escalation to a nuclear crisis uh, in uh, over Ukraine, Russian invasion of Ukraine today. And I mean, people in this building may know this, but people I think generally outside of this building may not know that Canada was the expert in NATO on escalation during the Cold War from the 1950s on. And it was used a different phrase at the time. It was especially authorization um, to use nuclear weapons or atomic before that. And so I think a study of 
how Canada developed that expertise, why it developed that expertise, and how it used that expertise for impact could be useful today. I mean, the the short story, of course, is that um, Canada, because of its bilateral relationship with the United States, um, and then later the decision to acquire atomic weapons for Canadian forces, led Canadian officials to spend enormous amounts of time trying to understand U.S. decision-making process and how that would intersect with Canadian sovereignty issues. And that expertise then was translated to NATO. And when the nuclear planning group was created in the late 1960s, Canada was in a way even more expert on this than the United States or the United Kingdom because they'd been thinking about how the process would work um, in regard to these shared nuclear weapons and shared warheads. And so Canada was able to play a remarkably important role in the development of guidelines for the use of tactical weapons in Europe. So it's a real specialty and expertise that's developed over time. We now can see how it was developed and conversations with the Supreme Allied Commander, deep study, you know, classic diplomacy and analysis coming together. So this is one of those echoes of the past where, of course, it's a different crisis today. But at the same time, it's similar enough that I think it's worth studying and thinking about whether there is anything useful there. And there may not be, but it seems to me like um, a real opportunity for connecting the past uh, with the present today. And it's just not a story that we talk about as Canada playing a major role in the strategic deterrent. Um, it doesn't come up that often, right? But it, it is true. And it was extremely important um, during our last major fears of escalation. So thank you. Go to Robert. Thanks. So, um, I'm my comments are not going to focus. Well, they'll be on NATO, but I, um, you can't look at NATO in crisis without also looking at its relationship with the EU and uh, the uh, really growing role of the EU in international affairs. Uh, any all. I spent a year working in NATO for NATO on Canada EU issues, and you cannot overstate the uh, paralysis, frankly, that is brought to every decision in NATO because of the EU angle. Almost everything, it's Turkey, Greece, Cyprus, it, uh, and the leverage that issue infects decisions that you would think are completely unrelated, but Turkey's not going to give it up its leverage on those issues unless it gets something over somewhere else. And you saw, you see that playing out in the decision on Sweden's succession to, to NATO currently. So, um, so I guess my point is I, I work in the branch that is re responsible for EU relations. It's not my bureau. Uh, Allison works in the branch that's responsible for NATO relations. But I, I, I think the way that we're set up mirrors, frankly, the structure of this discussion that doesn't bring the two together in a coherent analysis. And um, we talk about inflection points and disruptors. And I use uh, the EU on security issues is a disrupting um, actor, if you will, just like the internet I, is a, a big disruptor, if you will. So I think we need to figure out mechanisms to bring these two strands 
together in a more coherent fashion. And the reason I put my thing up so quickly was that Allison can clean up the mess I'm putting on the table. Uh, hot pursuit. Okay, I'll I'll do hot pursuit, and then I'm seeing you know. Yeah. Just because I have so much to say in this session, but I, I won't say it all. But I just have a hot pursuit on that on NATO and EU because it really speaks to the. We need to explain what hot pursuit is. Oh, That's exactism. Right, exactism. Yeah. Right. You're but right. Totally. That is a military term. I don't know. I'm right? going to skip the line. You don't want to wait because my because point you know, and is more actually more important. But I'll describe it as. You want to you want to make a point that's extremely relevant to the last conversation, right? So um, that, that that talks about that one, so that the the gist doesn't get lost. But it's the NATO EU angle that is so important, and it it and that stress that really talks about what's Canada's role at NATO. Because uh, one of the presenters, I think Susan, you said, you know, it's what are Canada's objectives there at NATO, but it's really about what our role is at NATO. And it's easier to see in the past when uh, in the 80s during the Cold War and during the, the growth of NATO when NATO was about, you know, keeping the Americans in, keeping the Germans down and keeping the Russians out, the old calling card of NATO. And what is NATO's calling card now? So, so that it is more about, I would argue, like Rob said, unity within NATO and the centrifugal forces that we see in NATO now within the Europe space that are harder for us to navigate. You know, the Easterners who want to go hard on the deterrent, some of the older, uh, we don't say old Europe, but you know, the, 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 the some of the states that have uh, ideas about engagement with Russia and so on. And how does Canada navigate that space? It's a different role for us. And I don't think it's a clear one. Um, I'll just do a public uh, PSA, public service announcement, which is a Gakism I learned, uh, you know, two days ago. Um, <laughs> coffee is available, so we will have to shorten our break a bit. So I do encourage if you want coffee, if you want to just stretch your legs, it's available. We will have a bit of a break. Um, I will also, I, I see a very keen interest in, 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 a, in a follow up from Rob. So I'll do Rob, uh, then I'll uh, do Lynn uh, and, and Susan. Just uh, <laughs> our, our, the Canadian superpower in all, all of these discussions is that we are always looked to for our uh, perspectives on our southern neighbor. And that is something that uh, I just wanted to put on the table. And then uh, I'll go Susan, Julie and Marthe. Um, thanks, Catherine. And um, I, this is, uh, I confess, not a NATO specific um, comment or question, but it's picking up on something um, Michael said in a slightly more lukewarm pursuit since I'm two uh, interventions behind. But um, as an explanation, um, I'm a Director General of International Economic Policy here at Global Affairs Canada, currently also covering the um, Director General Foreign Policy role as well. Um, and Michael, you, you, I liked how you said, you know, helping using history to help figure out like what's going on. And and part of our role in our branch as well is to figure out foresight, like what's coming next and not for answering right now, but just maybe over our shortened coffee break, just curious to think about how we harness um, some of the perspectives and insights that historian colleagues would share about helping us think not how to deal with a current situation using that intellectual capital that's built up, but also um, maybe having a better a 
sense of what what may be coming next and how to better sort of organize Canadian or think in ahead of time to to be to be better prepared um, for addressing what's coming next. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Susan. And did I see Ulrich? Did you? No, you didn't. OK, perfect. I wanted to pick up something Allison said about this sort of muddle today about figuring out Canada's role to say that that too has a history, right? And so uh, it can be very tempting. Uh, and I think we read often that today's world is more complicated than ever before. And the Cold War had certainty. Uh, the people who made policy during the Cold War did not have certainty. And so all of these questions about Canada's role, about a unity within NATO as being paramount, they plagued allied policymakers during the Cold War. They fought about whose vision of when and how to engage the Soviet Union was right perennially. And so there is a ton of history we could look to about how various Canadian governments, individual diplomats answered that question and tried to harness personal capacity, institutional capacity to, to, to carve out the, the best role there. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to say was we talked a, a little bit here about like the stories we tell ourselves, but I think in the NATO context, I'm actually more interested by the stories we don't tell ourselves, uh, even though the evidence is there. So we don't, right? Allison described us as a low defense spender. Uh, another way to say that would be that we are perennially behind on the commitments we make and breaking them constantly. It's not very charitable, but uh, that is how that evidence can be read from the outside. And I understand why we don't tell ourselves the story that we are a perennial laggard who like bumps off only Luxembourg on the chart, uh, but it is a, a constraint in, in which we're operating. And so we don't have to embrace the narrative, but we have to know that it's out there uh, to make policy. Thank you. I'll go to uh, Julie Sunday. Hi, thanks. And I just wanted to, so I'm the Assistant Deputy Minister for Consular Security and Emergency Management. So, uh, and I apologize, I was late. Um, it's, I have to say, listening to this discussion is quite soothing from my perspective, um, having dealt with uh, kind of what feels like multiple international crises over the past couple of years. So uh, I take to heart that you say that the muddle today that we're in is not a, a you know, something new necessarily. I think those of us who uh, are sometimes up late dealing with this stuff, um, you know, are, are quite seized a little bit by the crisis moment right now. Um, by way of background, I mean, this NATO discussion is fascinating. I, I wrote my P PhD on the uh, transition to democracy in Romania. And when I was in Bucharest in the early 2000s doing my research, every taxi driver in NATO, in uh, Bucharest wanted to talk about NATO enlargement. <laughs> and uh, you see the importance, right, in terms of what that particular period was. Um, I find more and more, you know, here we are today uh, in a time where, uh, you know, the Cold War, uh, sort of the echoes of the Cold War are, are still around us. Um, and and yet the world we kind of look at right now um, is, is a little, I would argue, is a little bit more complex in the sense that, um, yes, you know, NATO was, uh, of course, dealing with a very complex environment um, uh, at that time. But right now, I mean, we have multiple sort of uh, great powers competing. So, so it is 
certainly um, there's an added complexity there. Canada finding its feet in that uh, is certainly challenging. Um, you know, witness uh, sort of some of the stress we've been going through lately uh, with uh, the world's largest democracy, India. Um, I think that, um, you know, kind of understanding how we um, redefine ourselves, what is the story for this permacrisis moment? particularly in view also of what's going on with our traditional stable ally. And I, I think at some point really looking at the context in the US, uh, which is preoccupying uh, in terms of, you know, what we would call, uh, you know, what certainly looks like uh, a degree of democratic decline, um, to what extent is, you know, still a question mark. Um, but that is, that is a fundamentally destabilizing sort of moment for Canada. So I guess I sort of put to you, um, what is, you know, a little bit, and uh, looking back, um, what what is the story that Canada tells itself now? Like, where are the openings there? Thanks. Merci Julie. And again, I, I will thank you. I've thanked many colleagues, but uh, for, for choosing to be here to think with us, I think a lot of us are, have other things going on in our accountabilities, so it's really important to take the time. I think the last person I'm seeing was uh, Martin Roy, and then after this, uh, I will invite us to go to a quick coffee break. Me too, I'm from the department. <laughs> I cannot activate that. Uh, so my name is Martin Roy, I'm uh, the head of foreign policy research um, Actually, I wanted to make a linkage between the first session and the second session. Um, I think when we talk about stories, stories are very much linked to national interests. Um, and I think the we take for granted in many res uh, respects that our national interests are fixed in time. They're not, they're changing. And often we articulate our national interests in very broad term, peace, stability, security, prosperity. Uh, in the context of the, what's happening, for example, with the Ukraine crisis uh, and NATO, I think one of the issues we need to ask ourselves is what's our national interest with Russia these days? And I think it's moving over time. Sometimes I have the impression that we don't spend enough time actually really defining those national interests. The other elements about national interest are quite difficult to navigate because we can't have national interest with the US and with Russia. And we don't necessarily have sort of those things are clashing together in a way that's not always uh, easy to navigate. Um, in the case of the US, I think we often talk about sort of ongoing narrative about how the world is changing. We're talking about revisionist states like Russia and China, um, which are described sometimes as adversaries, uh, enemies sometimes. Um, the biggest factor in Canadian foreign policy, and that's, uh, that's an, uh, an evidence, is the United States. And the fact that there's a cons bipartisan consensus in the United States to actually go escalating the level of tension should be a concern for us. So I'm not just going to, I think it's a question I'd like to ask historians over time how our national interest has evolved. Um, and I think um, in in sort of bringing back those stories, what our stories are we telling ourselves, I think we we need to to have a, a sort of a deep look uh, at at national interest 
today. And I think historians could have a significant role to play in sort of helping shape shaping those national interests. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. So lots of food for thought for more uh, informal engagements, uh, which I'm hoping coffee will support. Uh, it's at the same place as it was in the morning. Before we break, does the, the deputy want to say a few things? No. no? Okay, perfect. See you in um, 15 minutes. We'll uh, regroup at 11:05. Uh, if you're looking for the washrooms, uh, you can ask any member of uh, this department. But they're just essentially maybe not. Actually, <laughs> maybe not. Those go to the play with the play. Those who were able to find the mics will will be able to help you find the the microphones. Um, it's just kind of like if you look in my hand here, just kind of a slight left uh, over over there. Avoid the construction.